This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Well, first I want to say uh, thank you to all of you for uh, being here today. We are grateful for your solidarity, your encouragement, and your support in the face of the most recent xenophobic, bigoted remarks from the occupant of our White House. This country was founded on the radical idea that we are created equal and endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. And yes, we have a long way before we fully live up to those values. And so the first note that I want to tell children across this country is that no matter what the president says, this country belongs to you. And it belongs to everyone. Sadly, this is not the first, nor will it be the last time we hear disgusting, bigoted language from the president. We know this is who he is. And we know that he and his Those were the voices of the squad, four freshman Democratic congresswomen who were the targets of racist tweets and comments from President Donald Trump. In order to focus on the political implications of the president's behavior, I spoke recently with Shadi Hamid, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor at The Atlantic, about what this says about the president's 2020 election strategy and what it means for the Democrats who are under fire, as well as the future of the Republican Party. Shadi Hamid, you're a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor at The Atlantic. You've studied uh, uh, the role of Islam in public life in the Middle East and Europe. Uh, you also are a, a student uh, of, of some of the, our own politics, uh, as, as gauged by a lot of your writing in The Atlantic. Uh, thanks for talking to Political Theater. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The topic, I think, that is uh, sort of sweeping a lot of politics right now and has been for a while but has flared up is uh, the, President Donald Trump uh, has, has, uh, has run on a lot of, of, of racial identity issues from the beginning. Uh, I mean, it was you know, roughly four years ago that he declared his candidacy uh, and declared that Mexicans were uh, criminals and, and rapists. Uh, and some of the, the rhetoric has escalated just in the last few days where he's gone after four uh, Democratic uh, congresswomen and said that they should go back to their own countries. Uh, uh, three of them were born in the United States. Uh, one is a Somali refugee, uh, Ilhan Omar, who immigrated uh, uh, roughly 20 years ago. But the, there seems to be a, a somewhat of a calculation uh, w- with this president. And I'd love to just get you, some of your opinions about whether this uh, there is a actually a benefit to his reelection prospects to ha- using such incendiary and, and frankly, uh, racist tropes in, in his public communications. Yeah, so when I, when I first saw Trump's tweets about going back to where they came from and all that, it took me a little while to process it because it seemed to me to be the most racist thing I had ever seen from Donald Trump. And there's a lot of competition there and sometimes hard to keep track. But I was like, this seems at a different level because it is targeting, um, you know, U.S. members of, of Congress who are representing 
representing their country. All, and I should note, too, uh, th- of those those four members of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's from New York. Uh, she's of Puerto Rican descent. Uh, Ayanna Presley uh, from Massachusetts. She is African-American. Uh, Ilhan Omar is from Somali and is Muslim uh, and, and is from represents Minnesota. And um, Rashida Tlaib is uh, a, a Democrat from Michigan and is also a Muslim and Palestinian. Yeah, so all, so all nine white. Uh, yes, yeah. Not, yeah, women of color. Yes, so. exactly. So, and then I think our initial instinct sometimes is to look at that and say, well, why would he do that? This seems crazy. Um, this might undermine support um, among um, Republican members of Congress. We might have thought that it didn't turn out that way, obviously. But the more I thought about it, there seemed to be a logic to it. And this is where I think Trump, uh, to, his, to his discredit, but also in a political sense to his credit, because he knows something about politics, that he has a sense of this darker side of the human psyche, and he knows how to tap into that at key moments. And pol- polarizing the country and dividing the country can help rally his own base and convince his own base that there are all these foreigners, immigrants, people of color who essentially hate America. And I think that we might not like to think it, but that can have a certain level of appeal and it, it drives a kind of sentiment that Trump can benefit from. And I don't think it's a mistake that around the time of elections or lead up to elections, we see an intensification of this divisive rhetoric. And so in that sense, I don't think it's an accident. And I think there's also some speculation that he's trying to, in a sense, push the Democratic Party further to the left and to to get Democrats to rally around these four members of Congress who are otherwise somewhat controversial, they're more on the left flank of the party, and then to associate the Democratic Party with that left flank. I don't know if I completely buy that, but there's no doubt to me that that's part of what Trump wants to do. He wants to paint the Democratic Party as a bunch of socialists, communists, and people who hate white Americans. And yeah, just happened to be, not be uh, uh, whiter shades of pale, if, if you will. Yeah. Um, specifically about Michigan, uh, Rashida Tlaib represents the Detroit area, but this is adjacent to Dearborn, uh, which is um, among the, the largest uh, uh, Muslim American communities in the world, really outside of the Middle East. Uh, and also, this is not a new thing either. These a lot of these folks were were recruited to come to Michigan to work in the factories by Henry Ford in the early and mid parts of the the twentieth century. So they've been there for a while. Um, the in some of the calculation, it's it, it's I mean perhaps there is this uh, firing up of a, of a a non college educated white uh, working class uh, base. But does he risk also alienating, I mean, perhaps some people in Dearborn who didn't vote or, or haven't felt that it, they needed to vote? And they're like, wow, I'm under assault by the most powerful man in the world. I better get to the voting booth. So I think that anti-Trump voters are already pretty mobilized because there's been all these outrages over the past two and a half years. So Trump may be calculating that he's not going to lose additional people. If you're in the anti-Trump camp, you're, you're gonna stay there, right? So what he wants to focus on is people who are maybe leaning towards him but need just an extra push. 
So I, I think that that could be that could very well be the case. And it's not as if Trump is calculating this all very carefully. He is also instinctually um, someone who engages in white identity politics. And I think that in America today, all politics is a kind of identity politics. Everyone is trying to appeal to these primordial sentiments of our race, ethnicity, religion. And there is actually quite a bit of academic research that says people don't really vote on policy. People don't vote in their narrow economic interests. We vote on these foundational questions of who we are. And that's why you'll see a lot of debate now around what what does it mean to be American? We're not debating as much tax policy or health care or the specifics of climate change. What is really driving American voters on both sides is the feeling that we're under attack from people who don't like us or who are different from us. And even I, in a sense, feel some of this as an American Muslim, um, regardless of how I feel about the Democratic Party's specific policy positions, I'm less interested in that. What I do know is that out of the two major parties, there is one party that is willing to stand up for Muslim rights or, or Muslim interests. So even theoretically, if I started to disagree with where the Democratic Party was going on policy questions, I wouldn't really have a place to go because ultimately you want to be in a party that accords with your own political or religious or, or ethnic identity. And I might wish that it were otherwise, but this is where our politics is going. And Trump has been playing into that uh, for the past the past three three plus years now. And I, I also know too that you're the, the part of Pennsylvania that you're from is this been this classical swing district area, suburban Philadelphia, uh, Bryn Mawr, uh, you know that, that we were talking earlier. And this used to be the territory that the political parties fought over. The idea that if you could win the Philadelphia suburbs, um, then you are going a long way to actually winning the presidency because Pennsylvania has always been this, uh, you know, truly like it, it's the Keystone State, but it's usually the Keystone State in, in American politics mm. also. And it seems like it's becoming less competitive in, in areas like the Philadelphia suburbs, Bucks County and so forth, uh, that, you know, there it's not even competitive for for Trump, and he's just moving out and looking for more voters in the more rural parts of Pennsylvania now. Is that does that been your observation? Yeah, I think that there's a there's a a kind of sort a sorting going on where um, some parts of Pennsylvania are becoming very Republican, and others are becoming increasingly Democratic. So you just focus on on your key constituencies and forget about the rest in a way. And um, I'm old enough to remember when um, my the, the Muslim community that, that I was growing up in, in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, was largely Republican. So in 2000, my parents voted for George W. Bush. Nearly everyone I know in our community voted for George W. Bush. There has been a really striking shift among American Muslims from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. It's a long story, but some of that has to do with 9-11, the rise of Islamophobia afterwards, uh, the Iraq war, those kind of fundamental differences on foreign policy. Um, and now Muslims are solidly in the Democratic Party. 
And I think a lot of people forget that. And, you know, there was this sense that especially recent immigrants to America were more were concerned about family and faith and preserving traditional values. And that was a lot of the discussion that was happening 20 years ago. But like a lot of the rest of the country, these divides, there have been these shifts where certain communities have become more solidly one thing or the other, and you don't have a lot of mixing. It's not like you're going to have 50% of Muslims supporting Republicans and 50% supporting Democrats. There's actually very few communities in America that are evenly distributed among the parties. And, um, and that gets to the bigger point that you just mentioned about um, groups are sorting. Mm-hmm. And I I am just sort of fascinated by this, too, because it, it seems like it, it, is it your observation, you know, through your studies of the Middle East and and, you know, other countries where, you know, there have been uh, there's been an influx of uh, um, immigrants from the Middle East to European countries. Is that happening not just in the United States, but is that sorting out happening in other countries? Yeah, so what we're seeing throughout Europe is the rise of right-wing populist parties that's been getting a lot of attention, obviously. But what's quite fascinating from my perspective is that these right-wing parties are quite different from each other in different ways. But there's one thing that they all share, pretty much without exception, and that is this preoccupation or even obsession with Islam and Muslim minorities, and even in countries that have very small Muslim populations, like Hungary, which has about 0.4%, in last year's elections, the question of Muslim refugees was, in some sense, the number one issue. And the ruling party was able to really draw on fears around Muslim immigration, Muslim refugees, to increase their vote total. Um, and, and that's why, you know, when we talk about like civil war in the Middle East and say spillover from the Syrian conflict, and we think that that's just a Middle East problem, it's not. It has these second and third order effects in Europe, but also more broadly. I mean, we can go, go back a couple years to Trump's proposal of a complete Muslim ban. And some of that had to do with the fear of Syrian refugees and other refugees that were increasing from Middle Eastern conflicts. One of the things I, I, I noted in, in some of your writings, too, is that you talk about norms busting and, and how that, you know, one of the thing, one of the frequent complaints lodged at the president is that he just breezes right past norms. I mean, granted, that was written before this past weekend <laughs> when, when he told uh, for uh, Democrats to go back to where they came from. Um, but it... It's your opinion, too, that this is not always a bad thing, like casting aside some norms is not always a bad thing, especially if some of those norms have have included an agreement to basically suppress votes or the rights of people. I mean, these gentlemen's agreements, say, in the United States Senate, which enabled, uh, you know, the the Senate and the United States Congress to get things done as long as they never talked about civil rights. (laughs) I mean, so this... I, I'm I'm just fascinated by this this idea of like that doing away with norms isn't necessarily a bad thing, and so it it's expand about yeah. upon that a little bit. Yeah. That that like some of what Trump is doing is maybe just casting aside some very comfy but not necessarily useful uh, norms that we had. Norms norms aren't just good because they're norms. There are good norms and there are bad norms, and just because we see that politicians are casting them aside 
That doesn't mean that, that that's all bad. And in the case of Trump, I would argue his norm busting is very concerning, if not frightening. But then if we look at the other side of the spectrum and we see folks like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really pushing the boundaries of what we can discuss in economic terms. So Ocasio-Cortez popularized the idea of a 70% marginal tax rate. And then Elizabeth Warren started talking about a wealth tax. These more economically populist messages wouldn't have been that acceptable or normal 10 years ago. And in some sense, Trump, because he says crazy things all the time, it empowers people who disagree with Trump to say, well, if he can say crazy things, let's see if we can push the boundaries of what was previously acceptable. And for for people, including myself, who think that inequality in America is, is one of the fundamental questions we have to address, and that may require going beyond the kind of center-left technocratic incrementalism, and we have to have bolder ideas that really address these issues head on, then maybe some of this economic populism can actually serve serve a good purpose, right? And, you know, I also think that saying that Trump is a norms buster um, doesn't mean, I mean, I, I worry about the rhetoric that we see quite a bit among Democrats that Trump is fundamentally violating norms and therefore he's a danger to democracy. I mean, these are different things that have to be distinguished. I'm as as personally threatening or just threatening as I see Donald Trump's ideas and policies. I'm still a, very much a believer that he was democratically elected. It was a legitimate democratic outcome. And I worry about this idea that we have to get rid of him by any means necessary because he's racist or because he's bad or because he doesn't respect norms. Um, I think we have to get rid of him through the electoral process, and that will be the outcome most likely to keep the peace. I worry about a situation where, let's say you had impeachment, and then Republicans for like the rest of my life, the rest of our lives, take that as this grievance which animates them pretty much forever where they say well you got rid of our president through impeachment whenever democrats win we're going to do the exact same thing and try to delegitimize them and not respect electoral outcomes so i think that there are these really big questions that trump brings out in his own interest it's not his intent to bring them out but we as observers, when we try to understand Trump, we're really looking at some big questions about what it means to live in a democracy, but also what it means to live with deep differences, that we as Americans no longer agree on foundational questions. So the question is no longer how do we resolve policy disputes, it's how do we live with people who we see as completely on the other side and, and people who don't share our starting premises about what it means to be American. That's much more challenging, but it requires us, I think, to become more accepting in some way of those deeper differences. And we have to learn to live together. There's no really other option here. Last question. Um, it, you know, th- this has been a heated, you know, few days, weeks of rhetoric about, I mean, certainly the the president's tweet is is part of that, but it, it's in, in some ways it's escalated a little bit. We've seen some fracases on the House floor over words being taken down. What, as a just as a as an observer of this process, what are you looking for as a 
you know, I mean, what what's the most interesting sort of actors in this that do you that you are personally interested in in what happens next, how they behave, what they do to respond to this sort of maelstrom? So I'd say two things. I mean, one, when this reporter asked Ilhan Omar, one of the four Congress congresswomen, to denounce Al Qaeda and terrorism, things like that. There was this really interesting debate where, because she said that she wouldn't dignify that with an answer, I saw quite a few um, conservatives attacking her for not being clear on that. Why can't she just denounce al-Qaeda? But I think her response was the correct one, and it's something that, that I think American Muslims have had to deal with for a very long time, which is people are always asking us to condemn this terrorist attack or that terrorist group just by virtue of being Muslim. But if as an individual Muslim, I have nothing to do with any of that, so why should I feel obligated to offer a disclaimer every time I'm talking about a terrorist attack? And it assumes a kind of collective responsibility, which I think is is very problematic. So that to me was an interesting development. And I'm glad to see that folks are rallying behind her response. Whatever you think about Ilhan Omar otherwise, I think that was the right response. But that that that's an interesting divide in seeing how different people respond to that. Something else I'm looking at is quite actually quite surprising to me how so few Republican congressmen have been willing to offer strong criticism or even in some cases mild criticism of Trump's racist tweets. I mean, if if you're not going to condemn this, then what are you going to condemn? And that to me is in some sense scarier than Trump's original tweets because we know Trump is going to be Trump. And a lot of us are, for better or worse, desensitized to that. But to see otherwise mainstream Republican Congress people, they can't just bring themselves to take a strong moral stand and say, hey, there's got to be a red line here. Um, and, and this gets at something I've always thought is, is fundamental to what it means to me to be American, which is that, um, you know, we are in some sense a country of immigrants and immigrants can become American. And I've watched over the years and I guess decades now how my parents who came from Egypt have really fully embraced their American identity. They are American. They are originally from somewhere else, sure, but there is no question as to their as to the depth of their American feeling in, in part because of how welcoming America has been to them. And if you can't stand up for that, then that to me is a real betrayal of something that is so central to what I've always assumed to be American identity. And if that continues in the Republican Party, then the kind of foundational divide that I was just referring to, that we just don't agree on very basic issues, that is going to expand. And look, that's Republicans' prerogative. They can say whatever they want. And, um, but but it, is very, it is very disconcerting. And so we might just be seeing, you know, a resorting of the political parties even more so than we've seen over the last few years brought on by some of this. Yeah, I don't think that the Republican Party is going to return to the previous norm after Trump or whenever that happens. And I think that sometimes people have this over-optimism is that Trump is just an aberration. He's a kind of that 
he's he's so unique in American political history that once he's gone, we we can just be normal again. And I think Biden kind of speaks to this as a Democratic candidate where let's go back to the way things were before and just go back to the steady march and the arc of history bends towards justice and all that. Um, but I think something fundamental is changing. And once you introduce these very polarizing and racially charged um, things into American politics, you can't just undo it with the flip of a switch. And the Repu- Republican Party, I think, is just becoming more Trumpian. It's being Trumpified. And I think you'll have Trumpism without Trump, to some extent at least, um, even if Trump is voted out of office in, in 2020. Why? Because Trumpism is effective, and Republicans see that, and that's why they're so afraid, I think, to really stand up against Trump, because they feel something intuitively and instinctively that the Republican base is changing. And um, this is what, in part, the Republican base wants and what they respond to. Shadi Hamid, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate us. Thanks for listening.